Well, morning. Happy to be here with you guys. It's a, it's a lovely day to be inside and maybe not soaking in the rain outside. Um, and yet, even though we're in here, I'm still going to ask the question, why are you here? I'm going to poke you in the eye a little bit and ask, why are you here? It's a Sunday morning. We live in a great, beautiful area. There's coffee and enchiladas to be had. And you're sitting in here listening to a one-semester seminarian who, you know, thinks he knows what he's saying uh, on a Sunday morning about an ancient Hebrew text to people in a time and in a space. So why are you listening? Why do we care? What on earth could Exodus 6, verses 1 through 13, have for us that would be worth it? Is it just a moral lesson so we can go and do better next week and try a little harder? Or is there perhaps more that this text reveals and talks about and leads us to? Why should you care? What is it about Exodus 6 that matters? And not just the Israelites, but for us today. Because we're not in Egypt in slavery, mind you. Well, I think a very real piece of it is that it speaks to a, a condition that we as humans have. And it speaks to our kind of twisted, cynical hearts, where we kind of poke at God and say, I don't know that I believe you, and I don't know that I want to, and I don't know that it's worth it. As a cynical person who finds it really easy to spend a lot of time questioning and saying, it's not worth believing, that kind of cuts deep. And when I say kind of, I mean that really cuts deep. Do we believe God at his word or not? Do we respond with cynicism? Do we question whether something will happen or whether it's ever going to come to be, whether it's worthwhile, or are we just pessimistic in, in what we're doing and waiting for something to happen? Do we even bother believing or hoping that something can ever get better than the suffering of our lives? It's an idea that we deal with a lot. And I know I deal with a lot. So, you know, great for me, I guess. Cynical person. It's really present in our culture, though. You look around and you see a movie like Forrest Gump. And for crying out loud, Lieutenant Dan, his whole character is a ball of cynicism. First time we meet him and he's chatting with Gump and he's relating his life goals and his family history, he tells him that like, oh yeah, every single one of my ancestors dies in battle and war. That's what I'm going to do. That's what my life is for. It's to die on the battlefield. That's what I'm going to do. That's his, that's his expectation. We're used to that. We relate to that character. I do. The cynical heart that doesn't believe that there can any, be, ever be anything better. So, what does the text have to say about that? Why should we pay attention to that? I don't know about you, but I'm often tempted to give up and cling to my suffering or the things that are difficult in my life, ignoring the hope and promise that God says he offers to us, and instead clinging to this perspective of begrudging complacency. And I have to ask the question, how do I ever have hope that I can get from there to rejoicing at the side of the cross? How is that possible when I'm as cynical as I am? And honestly, it makes sense when you think about it. When you, you know, segue from Greg's sermon last week, talking about the burdens of the Israelites being added to in Egypt. And you know what? I don't blame Moses in his response. When he says, Lord, why have you done this evil to these people in Israel? Or you, or you offer a better life and you say things are going to get better and you're going to draw us out of Israel and then our burdens get worse? 
And so chapter 5 ends on this kind of downer of a note before we hear, you know, of course, the beautiful lowrider gospel. Stole that analogy. That's just too good. And yet, they're still mad. They're still upset. And rightly so, to live with a boot on your neck and to be slaves under a people that don't treat or respect you and exploit you. I can understand why they would maybe be a little mad and go to God in a rash accusation. And so we come to chapter 6, and Moses is standing there, and he's pointing a big fat finger at God. And yet chapter 6 is God's response. How does God respond? The Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do. God's not stepping away, and the first thing he does is actually step in, in a presence of mercy and promise for deliverance. That's the first thing he says when this shepherd old dude comes up to him and points a big fat finger at him and says, you've done evil to us. And I don't think God would be unjustified in zapping him on the spot for crying out loud. He would be well within his rights to just leave a pile of ash where Moses once stood, and yet he didn't. And he steps forward and says, I promise you that I will draw you out of Egypt. And not only will I draw you out of Egypt, Pharaoh's going to send you out of Egypt. The guy who wouldn't let you go for three days is going to be happier to push you out of his own land when I am done with him. It sets up immediately this promise of reassurance and, and a contest between Pharaoh and God where God says it's not even a contest, it's not even a game. I have promised what I have promised and I will do what I will do. So in this immediate reassurance of promise, which God then elaborates on, we go to kind of the second big portion of our text. And verses 2 through 8 are a speech from God to Moses about Israel. And more than just Israel, about what God promises to do for the people of Israel. And he kicks that off in the first section by reminding and remembering the promises he's already made and affirming that this is a continuation of that. This isn't a momentary, out of the blue, God showing up and saying, cool, I guess I'll solve your, solve your problems now. God identifies himself as the God who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God Almighty. Verses 2 through 5 form a section where we see that divine deliverance from Egypt is a part of a much larger process than just a momentary saving. It's a process that builds upon God's promises. That's why he says, I have remembered my covenant. The I am the Lord statements that show up in this piece in God's speech to Moses, they're intended to reaffirm and say, I am the God that you seek and serve. And especially when you think about it in reference to chapter 5, where Pharaoh says, who is this Lord? And doesn't even believe and and questions the existence that there could ever be a Lord to these Israelite slaves. God identifies himself and says, I know who I am. I am the Lord. And furthermore, he steps in and says what he is going to do. Because he doesn't just say it. He elaborates on his promises. He is here to the cynical heart to reassure and tell people how he is going to be present in delivering them. Verse 3, when it says that I did not reveal myself to them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's, it's maybe not the best way to put it. NIV translates it a little better than the ESV. 
But the idea is not that God has not revealed himself to his people. It's actually better to say that God says, my name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? He's questioning. He's reaffirming. He's pointing to Abraham and saying, I am present, and I was present. He affirms and acknowledges that he was there, speaking with Abraham, the one who believed him and was counted as righteous. The fathers knew his name. They just didn't know all that it meant. Of course he revealed himself to them. It's merely that the Exodus shall make his name more known. And in this act, they will have a deeper, stronger understanding of who God is and how he saves. Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and in affirming that and identifying with that, he confirms that the covenant promise he made forever ago with Abraham is now coming to fruition. He's not ignoring it, and he's not forgotten it. He's very intentional in the time that he is arriving. There's a continuity between the fathers and Israel right now. And there's a response of faith. And you can't help but think of the comparison and notice that where Abraham got to see stars in a sky and heard a conversation with God, he believed. And Israel is here standing with multiple encounters where God is promising things, and they won't even dare to listen. It seems like a a bit of a breakdown between the two, if you ask me. I would imagine that in the bigger revealing of glory, there would be a stronger response of faith. And yet that's not the case. Israel can't help but respond with a cynical heart because of their afflictions. And yet God says that he remembers. And when, we, when he says in verse 5 that he remembers, it's not like God forgot or you know, woke up and didn't have coffee and isn't quite mentally there yet. It's that God is confirming what he is about to do. God remembering isn't some mere, oh yeah, let's go do that now. It is confirming that this is the right time and the right place for this deliverance to happen. It is not by accident or mistake that God waited till now to deliver his people and that he's doing it now and not later. The time has truly come for their deliverance because they live life under a heavy yoke. Of course they would seek deliverance. Why would you not? When you have your burden increased by Pharaoh, Would you not yearn for deliverance and saving? Israel has every reason to seek the Lord at this time, and still they don't. So what happens to be a merciful conversation where God identifies the consistency of his promises, he identifies as Yahweh and continues in the promise that he made long ago, we see that God looks to the past. He acknowledges Moses and confirms that this is a continuation of a great thing. In the keeping of his covenant, the Lord reminds Moses that he will be faithful to his commitment. And that is directly cutting to the heart of the cynical man that isn't daring to believe. That says, are you really the God who said? He says, I am. And yet he's not just a God who looks to the past. He doesn't just hang out and say, look what I did a while back and coast on that. No, he confirms and points forward and looks to the future. And in looking to the future, he says everything he is about to do. He lays it out for them. He says, I am the Lord. And again, 
this confirms God's promise of redemption. And when we look at verse 6 and see redeem and judgment, we're not just talking about great Christian words that sound real good so we can, you know, sound more spiritual and holy. To redeem something, to redeem someone, isn't like taking a coupon and cashing it in. It's a burden of a debt slave where you've worked yourself and or found yourself in a position where you are under somebody else's ownership. And so redeeming means to come in, and it's the idea of a close family member coming and purchasing your debt and freeing you from your servitude. And so when God says, I'm coming to redeem you, he's not just saying, yeah, I'll come get you guys out of there. He's saying, I am coming to purchase you from the place you have found yourself. I am the Lord. And in his judgment, in his justice, the payment that God provides does not need to be paid. Because what is right is to free Israel. Because Egypt has exploited them and taken advantage of them and treated them as less than the people that God has made them to be. And so the very justice that God promises and says he will step into in redeeming is not just a, oh, rip you on out of that hole. It is a, you were wronged, I see your affliction and your suffering, and I don't ignore it. And in fact, I'm actually coming to do something about it. God doesn't like our suffering. And more than pointing a big fat finger at it and saying, that, that's not so great, he steps in and does something about it. And so when we compare with Exodus 4, where God says that Israel's his child, the picture we get of God coming in is in fact the picture of a father coming to save and adopt and redeem his son, his children, and purchasing them unto a new life. And so in verse 7, we get another repetition of, I am the Lord. Again, reassuring the doubtful, unbelieving, hardened hearts of Israel. And this time when he says it, it underscores his intent to adopt them. He's going to take them, and he's going to deliver them. And more than it being a momentary three-day out in the wilderness to sacrifice, this is a long-term deliverance. What would it matter to be delivered for a hot second if it didn't result in the guardianship of God? This isn't a, a momentary deliverance. There's an afterward relationship that's indicated here where God says, I'm going to call you out. And the future of Israel is not in Egypt. The future is with me. He, he calls them out and sets them apart and identifies with them. This three-day weekend thing that, you know, you get away from your suffering for a hot second and, you know, get a break and come up for breath, that's not what God promises. He promises an eternal relationship where he is the God and protector of his people. And so in verse 8, God once again says, I am the Lord. And this time it confirms the promise and finishes his message. And it's not a promise of, you know, hey, we'll get some six scooters and we're going to go hang out and ride around. No, this is a promise of protection, a promise of aid, a promise of defense. The speech that God gives focuses on the liberation of God's people. But more than that, it focuses on the establishment of a relationship, a relationship where God is Lord and protector with a future focus for Israel. 
And so Moses, all piped up and ready to go, because I would imagine he would be pretty excited to deliver that message. I know I am. He goes and he tells Israel. Rolls on over there, tells them, hey guys, this is what God's willing to do. And what does Israel do? They respond with great faith and everything's perfect and it's all kosher, pun intended. No, it's not. Because of their suffering and their affliction, they aren't even willing to believe in what God has offered. Their burden is so heavy that they can't possibly look out of themselves. It's just too painful to ever reach for a hope beyond protection in a cynical heart. So despite God's renewed promise, the Israelites remain unconvinced. Even Moses has difficulty believing that God is going to do what he said he would do. Moses relates to their hearts that are shut off from the joy of promised grace. And honestly, it makes sense. How often are the wounded shutting their ears to the promises of help, to the promises of God, when all you know is pain and suffering? How do you ever want to hear anything else? And on the same note, when you're not suffering, it's not odd when prosperous, happy, healthy people Ignore God. I do it all the time. When life is good, how often am I sitting at the foot and saying, God help me? And then as soon as life gets hard, in my cynical, you know, whatever, fine, I guess I'll just suffer through everything because I stubbed my toe, I look for what? A hope and help? No. It's just really odd and perplexing that in the midst of all of their suffering, (laughs) Israel's just caught up thinking that they don't want to hear God's help. It's strange to me that people so entrenched in their suffering aren't even willing to hear the promises of God. The promise that their suffering would be lifted by a high and mighty Lord? No, but that's because the afflicted heart becomes hardened and cynical. Because it's a safety coping mechanism. Ask me how I know. In the presence of a promising God, though, such an unbelief smacks of utter disrespect for Yahweh and his saving power. Israel's got great faith, don't they? Yet God chooses to step in and respond. And in verse 10, he says to Moses, again, not hiding, not running away, but stepping into conversation with his people. And he identifies and says, I will still do what I've promised to do all along. I've not forgotten. I'm not ignoring it. And even though you've got heavy feet and you don't want to hear what I have to say, I'm still doing this. I'm still stepping in, and I'm still saving you. There's a a reaffirmation of God's plan and promise, and his perpetual persistence to save his people is revealed yet again. It's almost like he's a hopeless romantic just in love with these people. The desert pirate Abraham who responded in faith. And then Isaac and Jacob who were all just such morally upstanding characters. Just love them. The best. So of course Israel follows suit. How could they not? And yet Moses is more than a little bit discouraged. And honestly, I can't blame him. 
I mean, when you think about it, you're one dude, you're a shepherd guy, you killed a dude years ago in Egypt trying to help your people, and that's, what you, that's the help you could offer, was, was killing someone. And yet God comes to you and says, yeah, we're going to help you, and, and more than that, I will help you, and you will, you will lead. And so Moses, in his cynical heart as well, with his Moses moments that are riddled all throughout, gets discouraged. And I don't blame him. It's one thing for Moses to be discouraged by Pharaoh's hardened heart. I don't blame him. That would make sense. It'd be discouraging, yet kind of expected. And Moses, because of it, is attempted to depart from the calling that God has given him. It's just too hard to try and hope and argue for this tension of, of life and deliverance and salvation. And we need to be reminded that although Exodus kind of plays it down, Pharaoh is seen as a god in his culture. He is seen as an absolute authority where he resides with judgment and power. And so to go to Pharaoh and tell him, hey, actually, Pharaoh, you're wrong, is not telling someone at a fast food restaurant that got your order wrong and you would like pickles on your burger. This is going counterculture to every possible convention of authority that was known in the land. So I can see why he'd be a little bit discouraged after Moses has a hardened heart. Yet it still remains very perplexing to me, and it's an entirely different level of disappointment for Moses when the people that he has been tasked with delivering the promise to, don't, they don't even want to hear it. How crushing would that be? It makes sense for Pharaoh to disagree, but for God's own people to not even listen and pay attention? What on earth? The Israelites themselves do not have an open heart to the promise of God. They've shut the door of their hearts to him. Why should Moses interfere in what's an honestly more challenging task? It's ridiculous. So yeah, Moses does want to depart from his office, and it makes sense. And yet it's not right. God spoke, speaks to Moses and Aaron, and yet again steps in and fills the gap. And there's an affirmation of the calling that God has given to his people. He has called you to leadership. He has called you to a different life. And he confirms that and steps in and helps you believe that. And so where Moses and Aaron have a hard time even trusting that God would do something or use them or be willing to do it, God steps in and says, no, I'm not wrong. I've not made a mistake. And you've not faltered. I haven't called you to an, a lesson of failure I've called you to something that will succeed. God will draw his people out and unto freedom, whether we believe it or not. And that promise where he steps in and is willing to fill that gap and do it for us is the most necessary thing. The disappointment that Moses must be feeling and to hear the promise of God that he's not done that he's actually going to step in and lead his people yet again, still. That he gives them a charge to truly deliver the people of Israel, even in spite, because of their doubts, that he steps in and says, I am the Lord. 
But what, what, what do we do with it? Still an ancient Hebrew text. And while it does a really good job of, of cutting to the heart and excavating the cynicism that hides within, do we just do a little better? Do we just, hey, be a little less cynical? We're still cynical. I'm still cynical. We're still obsessed with it. You know, we still want to point to our suffering and say, look at how bad it is. And again, I can't help but think of Lieutenant Dan. When Forrest Gump gets wheeled in with his million-dollar wound, and he's lying on a gurney with two ice cream cones, comfy. And he comes in and he sees his friend, Lieutenant Dan, lying on a bed next to him in the medical bag. He turns to Lieutenant Dan and offers him an ice cream cone. That's a nice gesture of friendship and hope. That's sweet. And Dan takes it and stuffs it into a bedpan and throws it to the side. Why? Well, the curtains peel back, literally. And someone comes and picks up Lieutenant Dan from his bed. And you see that he's had both legs amputated. Yeah, I get why he's a little cynical. His suffering is pretty bad. Hey, you lost your legs. Here's an ice cream cone. What kind of help or good news is that? The very problem with that is that in order to ever be able to hope in something, the hope of the promise offered must be greater than the suffering experienced. An ice cream cone for your legs doesn't seem like a fair trade. And so maybe God just saying something doesn't count for the suffering of having the Egyptian boot on your neck. We need true life help more than just a good word where we can do it a little better. We need someone to truly step in and give a life-changing assistance to us and more than assistance to do it for us. Israel's not willing to. Who's, who's fighting for their deliverance? Not Moses, not the Israelites. And so the only way the act of deliverance is ever going to happen is if God does it himself. And he does. And more than just saying he's going to do it, and then going and, and drawing his people out of Israel, he does it. And he steps in physically and is present with his people. And not just in the deliverance from Egypt, but in the deliverance from under the boot of Roman oppression. He shows up and, become, and comes down as God's word and his promise encased in flesh and lives as Christ, ministering unto his people where he's present, offering grace and justice and mercy. And so God, more than just saying he's going to do something, he shows up and he does it. And you want to talk about suffering and thinking that maybe your suffering is a little bit worse than, than God can ever understand? Tell that to the God who got nailed to a tree for the people who would never do it anyways, the people who were supposed to. This isn't a momentary deliverance that God is promising just for Egypt. This is a lifelong, eternal promise where God in love steps forth in mercy and in grace and says, I will draw you up out of slavery. The deliverance promise here in Egypt reflects a promise 
for a much greater deliverance for a much larger people. And so God answers man's fallen condition of a cynical heart by stepping in and not only reassuring and saying, you you don't need to have a cynical heart, but he offers a hope that's far greater than any suffering we've ever experienced. And he offers a hope and a salvation and a life, and he doesn't change his mind. God is not swayed in his promises. He is not lost to delivering his people. Though some may attempt to step in and prevent the will of the Lord, be that Pharaoh, be that Egypt and all of their people, be that Israel and their own cynical hearts, God is not swayed and he will deliver his people. God will draw his people to life and freedom, whether we believe it or not. And that's a way better hope than anything I've ever found elsewhere. So that's why I think you should care about Exodus 6 on a Sunday morning when you could be eating green chili. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we think and meditate on these words, the words that you have promised to your people where you say that you will show up and deliver, We can't help but be cut by our lack of faith. Lord, we need help and we need someone who can more than just deliver us, who can have faith for us and give us faith. We are too weak to just do it on our own. I pray, Lord, that you would give us what we need that we might love you and serve you. In your name I pray, amen.